Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Angel Insights, where we hear from some of the top performing business angels in the UK and the entrepreneurs behind some of their portfolio companies. I'm your host, Tom Brisson, co-founder of Syndicate Room, creators of the Access EIS Fund, which uses data to identify some of the top performing angels in the UK and builds a fund that co-invests with these angels. But enough about me, let's get to the show. Today, I'm joined by the incredible Chris Mayers who's held various executive roles at Metaswitch Networks, including a long stint as CTO, has been the chairman at Magic Pony Technology, Kiron Medical, and Folix Silicon Photonics, as a board member at Raspberry Pi, venture partner at Entrepreneur First, a fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, has one of the most enviable angel portfolios of anyone I've spoken with, and is also a CBE. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. We'll talk about angel investing in a little bit, but I wanted to start with a few questions about your uh, career, if you don't mind. You've been in, in tech for some time, um, and you got to spend some time actually in the US with one of your companies. Tell us a little bit more about the experience in working for a tech company in the US uh, and highlight any differences that you see between you know, working for a tech company in the US versus in the UK. I think you understated it by saying I've been in the tech business for a little while. Um, uh, when I first started, we were still doing stuff on punched cards, literally. <laughs> so this has been a long journey. Um, so I was in uh, Palo Alto in 2010 and 2011. I'd spent the previous 25 years, actually, traveling back to the States about once a month, because most of our customers were actually big technology companies in the US. We were selling a lot of stuff to IBM, Microsoft, Hewlett-Packard, Lucent, and so on. But actually working there, what would I say is the difference? I think there is still more self-belief in the US than in the UK. And that big ambition, which we still don't quite have as much as we need to have in the UK, certainly changing, but people being willing to go big in the US and always start from the assumption that what you're building is going to be massive and world-changing. And it's just a question of how to get there, whereas we tend to start at the other end of the spectrum a little bit. So as well as from a career perspective and working in the US, you also have an extensive career in investing. And from my perspective in being involved in tech in the UK for, say, the last 10 years, we have made grounds on the US and in particular Silicon Valley but there still is a gap to be filled. Given your experience investing, what do you view as the main difference in approach of US startups versus UK startups? And, and what do you think we, we can do to bridge that gap? I think it's driven as much as anything by the availability of capital and awareness of markets. I think in the UK... We are still somewhat constrained by not as much capital available to grow quickly. But also, I still think we tend to be somewhat engineering-led um, and not quite as customer-focused as many technology startups in the US. Uh, what I notice from CEOs of US startups um, is that they really have a good understanding of their market the competition and how they are inserting themselves in the user workflow, you know, the particular pain point they're solving. Whereas sometimes I still see in the UK people developing a business around a technology rather than around a customer problem. Interesting. Um, do you think that, and I've seen it a little bit, where 
there is becoming more interest in the UK tech scene from external investors. So we saw obviously Google Ventures set up a, a European focused fund and, and they have a lot of it going into the UK. You know, we know about uh, obviously Index, which sits in both and Atomico, which is big here, but we're starting to hear of, you know, um, the Google founders are actually investing in what was it? First Minute Capital, which is, is focused on the UK and Europe. Is there appetite for UK uh, startups from external investors? Absolutely. And I think very significantly, the fact that Sequoia have now opened a London office is a significant move. And so I do expect we will see more of the tier one investors coming into the UK, not just for the UK, but as a base for investing in, in Europe. Partly that's because valuations in Europe are still better than they are in the US for, from an investor's point of view. They're lower. And partly I think it's because there is less competition from tier one VCs here. So if you come here with a fantastic stellar tier one reputation, then you are going to get the opportunity to invest in companies without necessarily having to compete with other West Coast tier one VCs. Now, that's ultimately going to be very good for the UK ecosystem because other funds will follow, I think, and it will mean there is more opportunity for people to bridge more seamlessly from the UK to the US. But I mean, as a, an angel, I mean, obviously, that's a, a good sign of having the capital for the next rounds. We'll talk about Entrepreneur first in a second, but you've got Reid Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, as I believe he's, he's a venture partner at Entrepreneur First? No, no, he's a board member. Board member, that's what it is. And so, I mean, that must be exciting as well. Do you get to spend some time chatting with him about investing in technology? I don't personally. Matt and Alice, who are the founders, do spend a surprising amount of time with Reid, actually. He has been extremely helpful for not so much for the individual businesses, individual startups, but much more for setting the strategy for Entrepreneur First as a company in its own right. Fantastic. I kind of jumped into it. Um, so I want to backtrack for a second. And we covered your career a little bit earlier, but how did you get into angel investing? What kind of switched you on to it and making the switch kind of from operator to investor? You spoke a little bit earlier about spending time in Palo Alto. We had Sequoia Capital as one of the big investors in our business. And I was actually out there because they'd suggested that we ought to send a bunch of engineers out into the valley to mix with their portfolio and get a feel for how things were happening in the valley, agile development methodologies and so on. So that was why I was out there. I was a responsible adult looking after <laughs> a bunch of young engineers. But I did get the opportunity to listen in to people pitching to Sequoia quite often for significant amounts of money. And I realized that sitting on the investor side of the table, it's really interesting. You, know, you get to meet some amazing people developing solutions using technologies that you didn't even realize were a thing solving problems that you hadn't even thought about. So when I came back to the UK, I'd got quite excited about some of this very early stage stuff that was going on and just dipped my toe into it and realized that I really enjoyed it. And since then, I've become a bit addicted to angel investing. And I want to talk about due diligence for a second. And I actually, I want to bring up something a little bit personal. You know, so for, for those that aren't aware, you have a very rare form of degenerative sight loss that has effectively rendered you blind since the age of 18. And I wanted to get insight into how do you do your product due diligence? It's um, a good question. There are obviously going to be some products where I am going to struggle to understand whether this really is 
good or or not I mean, where where the graphics of the user interface are have to be so 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 stunning i would always find it quite difficult to invest in video games uh, where you know the graphics are such an important part of it but for most products if i ask the entrepreneur to describe what's going on to me then either i will get a good idea of it and it will seem straightforward and compelling or it'll seem like a complete mess. And if it seems like a complete mess, then I think there's two potential reasons why. One would be that it is a complete mess. And the second would be that the entrepreneur is just really bad at explaining things. And both of those are a sort of red flag to me. <laughs> Quite interesting. If you can't explain it to you or anyone else, then how are you going to sell it to anyone, right? So. Well, if you can't explain it to me, then either there's something wrong with it or there's something wrong with you. <laughs> so let, let's talk, let's jump to team just for a second. You're a venture partner uh, for Entrepreneur First, which has a, a really unique approach on the accelerator model. For those that aren't aware, can you take us through that unique approach a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't categorize it as an accelerator. We call ourselves a talent investor. And the important difference is we're not accelerating anything because there is nothing there to accelerate. So we are creating something. What we do is we seek out people who we believe could be amazingly impactful through entrepreneurship if they had a framework for becoming an entrepreneur. And what does that framework mean? Well, it means, typically, it means finding a co-founder. It means having an idea. And it means being helped through that very, very early creation of a business through to the point of actually presenting that business for seed funding. And that's what we do. We put 100 people into a cohort in London every six months. And out of that cohort, we will typically produce maybe a dozen businesses that receive typically a million pounds, one and a half million pounds, uh, maybe sometimes more than that of seed funding. Entrepreneur First invests in the business ourselves. So we write a small check very early on before anyone else has put in seed money. Um, and then we continue to participate in the next couple of rounds of investment. And we do that, as I say, in London. We also do it in Berlin, Paris, Toronto, Singapore, and Bangalore. Those are our centers at the moment. And, and I mean, the entrepreneurs first has obviously been incredibly successful with some some notable exits already. One of them was mentioned earlier with Magic Pony, for which you were the chairman. Tell us a little bit about that team in general, kind of what do you see as making a good team? What is it composed of? Why did Magic Pony work so well? And even with all the resources of Entrepreneur First, some of the other teams you know, don't kick on. That was an amazing journey. We went from zero to being acquired by Twitter for a reported $150 million um, in the space of 18 months. So as an investor, that's an IRR on my investment that I'm never likely to see again. But uh, it's an amazing team that represented in many ways what Entrepreneur First is looking for, which is a CTO with deep, deep technical expertise and a CEO with an understanding of how to potentially apply that expertise and technology to a particular domain. And the ability and the charisma and the articulateness, if that's a word, to, um, to be able to persuade investors and potential customers of the significance of the technology. In particular, what Magic Pony was doing was all around video processing, either to reduce the amount of bandwidth to transmit um, a given quality of video or upscale 
the result of transmission. So you use a low bandwidth link to transmit high fidelity video. So it's pretty smart technology. They built a team of 11 or 12 PhDs. I think the only person in the business who didn't have a PhD was the CEO. And they built a significant patent portfolio and they had some technology that was already looked very impressive. They hadn't actually commercialized it by the time they were actually acquired. It's, it's, it is really an amazing story. As you mentioned, it's an IRR that is just wow. But obviously, when you get super smart people into a room, they sometimes bring egos as well. So when you're kind of pulling these people together and they're, I don't want to say playing matchmaking them for entrepreneur first, are there any signs earlier on that yet this group will gel or that group won't? And, and how do you distinguish between the ones that you're pretty sure will go on to do big things and the rest that won't? There are sometimes red flags about co-founder interactions, simple things like, do they actually respect each other? Do they give each other the space to speak? Do they talk over each other? Disagreements per se aren't a bad thing, but the disagreements have to be handled constructively. So I would say that you can see teams that aren't going to work. I think seeing what's going to be a successful business is much harder. We're pretty good at stack ranking the teams to the extent that if you look at the ones that get funded, pretty much everyone that we put in the top quartile of a stack rank will end up getting funded. When you get to the middle of our stack rank, um, it's much less clear. But, you know, Magic Pony, they were always in that top quartile. And I think they, they demonstrated it, not just in terms of getting through to being acquired so quickly, but also what's happened since. I mean, Zeehan has gone on to run a significant engineering team within Twitter. Wow. So one last one on Entrepreneur First. A lot of the companies that go through the program incorporate AI and machine learning in, in, in some way in what they do. And I want to bring up a talk that you gave at one of our earlier events about four years ago on the importance of AI and machine learning and where things were headed. How do you think the technology has evolved? Is it ahead of schedule, behind schedule? And has there been anything with it that has really surprised you in the last four years? It's a good question. On balance, I would say it has gone forward at least as fast as I would have expected it to. But there have been some areas which have progressed more quickly than I thought they would, and some that have definitely gone into a bit of a temporary AI winter. There was a lot of hype a few years ago around autonomous vehicles, which has proved to have been somewhat over-optimistic. And in hindsight, it's easy to see why, because it's an incredibly difficult problem where there are so many edge cases. The edge cases are literally, in some cases, life-threatening. So you've got to be able to handle the edge cases, and that's something where humans are extremely good at. We do it without even realizing we're doing it. But if AI gets it wrong and someone dies, that's going to set, well, as we've seen um, with one or two incidents over the years, it sets the whole program back by several years. The one area which I... I think I probably didn't even mention at the time, which has been amazing and has gone forward much more quickly than I expected, is in the area of application of AI to life sciences and biotech. And you know, this week's announcement of AlphaFold from DeepMind, of course, a great example of that. But there are many businesses I've worked with in drug discovery, in material sciences, in use of biocatalysts for industrial processes, many, many different ways of using AI 
to better understand cells, DNA, proteins, and come up with some pretty amazing progress in many different fields. No, it's, it, it really is fantastic to see what they're doing. So I, I look forward to seeing what else they're able to do with it. Jumping around a little bit. So we talked about due diligence, but I want to talk about portfolio construction a little bit. There are definitely angels who build um, smaller, very focused portfolios of 10 or so companies. And there are angels who take a slightly broader approach to that. And I was hoping you could take us through how you view portfolio construction. So I'm definitely in the broader category. I think I've done about 110 angel investments since 2012, which is certainly more than I had anticipated. If you were going to take an uncharitable view of my approach, I think you'd say Chris is a bit like a kid in a sweet shop. You know, if you <laughs> see something nice, he has to have one. That is not an entirely unfair characterization. There are some things which I would avoid. I don't tend to invest in e-commerce businesses. I don't tend to invest in video games or esports businesses. But I do go quite broad across AI, life sciences, semiconductor, and even some what I would categorize as technology-enabled businesses around marketplaces, for example, where the technology isn't actually rocket science, but without it, you couldn't build the business. And the reason why I have such a broad portfolio is that what I really invest in is the people. I'm looking, always looking for founders who, to use the cliche, surprise and delight. If I have a meeting with a founder and I come out of it thinking, wow, this is an amazing person who's doing something really interesting in disrupting a sector where there is clearly a hair on fire problem, then I can get quite excited, pretty much whatever the technology is, so long as I believe there is some element of defensibility in there. Well, your, your approach seems to be working because obviously our data has identified you as one of the top investors in the UK. A follow-on to that, though, is with such a large portfolio, how do you approach follow-on rounds? I'll tell you a story about the recent analysis I did on my portfolio. Because at the moment, I have done... If you look back over the last eight years, I've done some companies where I did follow on and some where I didn't. And it's not that clear why I made the decisions. So I then thought, well, take all the money that I have invested, divide it by the number of companies that I've invested in, and then let's do a hypothetical portfolio where I just did a one-shot investment in each company of that same ticket size in every single company. Never follow on and then just look at what the performance would have been. And the depressing fact is that I would be 30% better off if I'd just taken that approach rather than what I've actually done, which is varying my in initial ticket size based on some judgment I thought I was making or deciding to follow on or not deciding to follow on. Wow, 30%. So, I, so, so I could have saved myself a lot of brain power and just said, look, <laughs> I do a 25k ticket, that's what I do, and I never follow on. And that would have given me a better portfolio than what I've got. Generally speaking, I don't follow on. I think that if I have enough deal flow, which I have more than enough deal flow, and I invest very, very early, then I can get better returns by deploying the money in another company at the early stage rather than by using it as a follow-on ticket. I think that makes perfect sense, given that's what our own analysis of the broader market has come up with. It'll be interesting to see if you stick to the rule and follow the data or find something. I mean, that sometimes you just think, 
oh, this business is so good, I need to double down on it. And, and there are many people, of course, who would say, you absolutely should double down, but uh, I, I'm not as disciplined as I ought to be. I'm just saying, no, I'm never going to follow. <laughs> no, thanks for that. So the other thing about having a large portfolio is having some war stories to share. I don't want to ask to name and shame many companies, but what do you think are the biggest lessons you've learned about investing from the portfolio that you've built? I think two conclusions. One is it's very easy to get undercapitalized at the early stage and fall into this valley of death between your seed round and your series A. And sometimes I don't think angels or early stage investors necessarily help the founders because they try to drive the valuation low or invest insufficient money for a given equity stake, which then results in the founders not getting far enough. And sometimes founders shoot themselves in the foot by being far too bullish about how far they're going to get on a small amount of money. And they go, well, I don't want to get overly diluted. Therefore, I'll take a smaller amount of money. Then they don't get far enough. And it's, I often say to founders, it's harder to raise money when you've got a little bit of revenue than when you've got no revenue at all. Hmm. If you've got no revenue, you're essentially selling the dream. Once you've got some revenue, then there are statistics and analysis that people can do and come to the conclusion that your business isn't perhaps as strong as the valuation would demand. So that's the one thing I'd say is undercapitalization at the early stage is, is unhelpful usually. And the second thing I'd say is co-founder relationship issues. Not to say they're frequent, but when they happen, they can be existential for a business. So I have occasionally invested in sole founders, and that can work, but it's a, it's a very lonely thing to be a sole founder. So always try to find co-founding teams rather than sole founders. But if that co-founding team ultimately cannot get on, then breaking it up can be existential for the business. Interesting. Is there a max number of co-founders that you think is appropriate? So generally what I hear is any more than three and it's just too many chefs. Well, interestingly, Metaswitch had seven. Oh, wow. <laughs> there are always exceptions. Which, which <laughs> but... I certainly would not recommend. I mean, it worked okay, but uh, it, was a, it was a big number. And it gave the CEO a challenge in keeping everybody pulling in the same direction. I far prefer two over three. With three, there is a temptation for one person always to be slightly left out. So hmm. you know, two of the founders are very aligned. And, and the third one can feel like the odd one out. So two is by far the best number for me. I have seen three work and I have occasionally seen four work. I, I think I agree with you on, on those points. So, so thanks for that. Obviously, this year has been impacted heavily by the COVID pandemic. But with you know the vaccine on the horizon and things hopefully opening back up, are there any trends that we should look forward to uh, next year in the angel investing space? Yeah, I think there are a couple of uh, potentially very interesting areas. Obviously, there has been this huge shift towards remote working over the past nine months. And I don't think that's going to get reversed. I think there will be a very different landscape in terms of how much time people are spending in the office um, versus at home. And there should be plenty more opportunities for innovation there, much less obvious innovation perhaps than, than the Zoom phenomenon. Um, there'll be different sort of office space usage patterns where people may be able to come up with creative 
solutions for use of space. So that's one area where I think we'll see some some new ideas coming up. The other thing which I'm very hopeful of is that the need to develop the COVID vaccines quickly will have permanently changed regulation around drug approvals and around more, more generally around medical devices and diagnostics. I'm sure you've seen the stories around the Moderna vaccine taking two days to develop and then nine months to get through all the paperwork, the regulatory. Um, And that's obviously that nine months is an awful lot shorter than it would otherwise have been. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we will see much more innovation due to more realistic, more fit for purpose regulation moving forward. Good to know. So I appreciate we've been chatting for a while. So I'm just going to ask one more question. Consider you could go back in time and tell yourself when you were just starting angel investment, um, just one thing uh, to keep in mind when investing, what would it be? Just ask yourself, is this person exceptional enough? When looking at the, particularly at the CEO of a business, sometimes I've invested in businesses where I thought the idea was great um, and I wasn't sure about the CEO. Now, if I were to go back again, I think I would apply my rule of investing in founders as opposed to investing in businesses even more fundamentally. I think that is uh, good advice to to end the show with. So, Chris, I'm going to say thank you very much uh, for sharing your wisdom and your time with us. Um, and I do hope that we can kind of revisit this conversation in a, in a year's or so of time. I'd be very happy to do that. It's been, it's been a good conversation. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Chris Mayers. You've been listening to Angel Insights, produced by Syndicate Room. Until next time, bye.